Well, I would invite you to take your Bible again and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 for this message entitled, John the Witness. It's appropriate what Doug read there from Luke chapter 1 that'll come into play in our message today. I'm excited to come back and preach. I'm thankful for Pastor Dan Naw and Pastor Allen filling the pulpit the last couple of weeks. But I'm eager to, to get back into this gospel. Our text for today is John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, where we are introduced to the star witness in this courtroom drama, where the Apostle John is setting forth his case to prove that the Messiah is Jesus. History is filled with well-known and famous court cases, courtroom dramas, You can go back to 399 B.C. when Socrates was tried and found guilty of corrupting the youth with his philosophies and his challenging the gods of the state. You probably remember his sentence, drinking poison to death. Galileo Galilei in 1633 was on trial for having the audacity to claim, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, that the earth revolved around the sun. He was condemned and given a life sentence of house arrest. In 1961, Adolf Eichmann was captured and tried for his role in orchestrating the Holocaust. He, of course, was convicted and condemned and executed by hanging. More recently, in 1995, many of you remember the O.J. Simpson trial. I remember sitting in one of my seventh grade classrooms and the teacher would turn on the radio where the trial was being broadcast. Many of us also remember uh, 10 years later the trial of Saddam Hussein, which was broadcast around the world. These days, courtroom dramas take up the newsroom cycle and serve as the source material for books and television shows and movies. And because of that, there's many dynamics that even if you've never stepped in a courtroom yourself, jury duty or whatever reason, uh, we're all familiar with many of the dynamics of the courtroom. We understand that there is the prosecuting and the defense attorneys. We understand the role of the jury. Uh, There's always going to be witness, a judge, uh, excuse me, witnesses, a judge, evidence, and, those, and then there's that witness stand, which is occupied along the way by various kinds of witnesses who are questioned and cross-examined. But we also know that not all witnesses are created equal. There are some witnesses that we would call the star witness. The star witness is often the witness on whom the case turns. The star witness can destroy the case of the prosecution, or they can demolish the case of the defense. The star witness usually has a unique perspective because of their relationship to the defendant or their role in the matters at hand. Perhaps they're an eyewitness to the events and the crimes, or they're even a co-conspirator who has agreed to testify against the defendant. The star witness sometimes becomes the star witness after the fact, after it's revealed the significance of their particular testimony. But in our media age, we often know the star witness in advance. Today, a lot of speculation gets printed in the media and talked about 
on TV regarding what a, a star witness might say, such that when they take the stand, there's a, there's a lot of anticipation and hype over what's, what's about to take place. This is so significant that sometimes the star witness becomes the most enduring memory of a particular case. Sometimes the witness almost becomes as well known as the defendant themselves. Now, strangely, this is not the case with our star witness, John the Baptist. If you read virtually any book or article today that seeks to defend the deity of Christ or, or seeks to to explain how Jesus really is the Son of God, you will virtually never come across the testimony of John the Baptist, who we're calling for today, John the Witness. But when God himself, through the Apostle John, wants to make a compelling case that's incontrovertible, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, he starts with the star witness, John the Baptist. In our text for today, we're, we're going to have day one of the testimony of John the Baptist. And then we'll recess until next week when we'll hear the actual testimony as to the identity of the Messiah. Now, you recall that when we walked through verses 1 through 18, we heard the Apostle John's opening arguments, if you will, where he introduced us to the ideas and the themes that he's going to walk through in the rest of the book. And, and in that opening testimony, he Uh, he identified who his star witness would be. This man named John, who, as he said, was not the light, but came to bear witness to testify to the light. As we walk through the rest of the gospel, there will be other witnesses, there will be evidence that will be put forth. But John's, or yeah, the apostle John starts with, if you will, the star witness. Perhaps you could say one of the more compelling evidences that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the reasons that this is the case is because John himself, John the Baptist, is the fulfillment of prophecy. So if anyone wants to understand who Jesus is, you can do no better than to start with the testimony of the star witness, John the Baptist. Now let's read the text and then we'll walk through this first day of testimony. Follow along as I read verses 19 to 28 of John chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John. When the, new, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. 
As John takes the witness stand, uh, he begins where any testimony would, st- would start, and that is with personal identity. Who are you? And credibility. How can we believe you? In verses 19 to 23, we start with the identity of John the witness. And then in verses 24 to 28, we hear what establishes his credibility. There's really a great irony in John the witness in his life. He is relatively unknown, uh, given very little attention in Scripture. And yet, Jesus said that John is the greatest of all those who have been born among women, which is to say, everyone. (laughs) In other words, Jesus describes John as the greatest human being who ever lived. What made John the greatest human being, second only to Jesus himself? Well, simply this, he he was a prophet, yes, but more than a prophet, his prophetic role was to, to prepare the people of Israel for the arrival of the Messiah. He had the unique and the distinct privilege of softening the hearts and the minds of the people, calling them to repentance so that when the Messiah came, they would be ready to receive him. Now think about that. Has any other figure in history had someone sent by God in advance to prepare the world for their arrival? Is there anyone you can think of in history who understood the purpose of their life was to to clear the road, if you will, for someone else's arrival. Certainly from the perspective of the world and our culture in particular, John the witness is unknown. And yet he is an undeniable historical figure whose very life points to the truth of Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. So what we read here is of no little importance. In building the case for Jesus as Messiah, the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, starts, like I said, with one of his strongest arguments. And so if you're sitting there and you have not believed in Jesus as the Savior of the world, pay careful attention to what the Word of God says here. Because if you want to deal honestly with the truth, you have to grapple with the testimony of this key witness. Now, let's, let's begin by considering the identity of this star witness in verses 19 to 23. We're, we're clued in that this theme, the, the theme of this section is the identity of John by that simple question at the end of verse 19, who are you? This question, as it says, was asked by priests and Levites who were sent by the Jews in Jerusalem. And that That phrase, the Jews in Jerusalem, is a reference to the religious leaders, most likely the Sanhedrin, uh, the rulers, the religious rulers of Israel who ruled over the the people, at least in terms of their religious life, who are made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Remember that Rome uh, oversaw that land. It was Roman territory, and they ruled in terms of the civil society, more or less, and the Jews had rule over the religious life uh, of the people. Though obviously in Judaism, there was a lot of mixture between civil and religious life. The Apostle John here gives us very little information about John the Baptist's life and ministry, but the other Gospels tell us a great deal about this man who, are, who was asked, Who are you? 
Now, the truth is, these priests and Levites, they really weren't asking John to identify himself in terms of his name or his parentage or his occupation. When they asked, who are you? What they wanted to know was, who did he consider himself to be in the plan of God's redemptive history? If they wanted to know who he was in terms of his personal identity, he certainly could have just said, my name is John. I'm the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth of the tribe of Levi. If you wanted to take it up a notch, he could, have, he could note that his birth was a miracle announced by an angel on the same level of Isaac who was born to Abraham and Sarah. But that's not the kind of information these priests and Levites were asking. In fact, they may well, know, may well have known uh, John's family. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth's miraculous son, which had occurred somewhere around 25 years earlier, no doubt had spread around. The fact that John left home at a, a young age and lived in the wilderness would have stirred interest because he didn't follow in the priestly footsteps of his renowned father. Whether they knew his background or not, his name, John, was certainly known to them because when he began his prophetic ministry, the scripture says, all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. So there were thousands, tens of thousands of people coming out of the populated areas to the wilderness where John was, making their way out of that beautiful hill country of Judea, through the wilderness, down to the valley, across the Jordan, to hear the preaching of John and be baptized by him. Everybody knew his name. And there's no doubt that as the priests and Levites were traveling what was likely a two to three day journey, some 40 to 60 miles from Jerusalem to where John was baptizing, they encountered many others who were making this pilgrimage. And there would have been discussion about this prophet named John. Well, all of this religious activity more than piqued the interest of the religious leaders in Israel. They had reason to be concerned about all that was taking place because over the last few centuries, there were many self-proclaimed messiahs who drew people to themselves, created a revolt against the Romans, and forced the Romans to put down their revolts violently. And so if the people, if the religious leaders let another revolt come to pass, the Romans might well take away their authority and their right to rule over themselves. But there's also another reason why they would have been interested in the ministry of John the Baptist. There were heightened messianic expectations. The hope of the coming Messiah was, was in the air. And perhaps it was the talk of the miraculous birth of John, again, some 25 years earlier. Or perhaps there was the talk of the miraculous birth of a boy born to a virgin somewhere around that same time that elevated expectations. Maybe it was just the oppressive rule of the Romans where the, the people hated the Romans and they longed for that coming Messiah. Whatever it was that heightened their expectations, there were, in fact, messianic expectations. And so those expectations led to this question, who are you? Notice what it says there in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The Apostle John doesn't just relate to us. John the Baptist answers. He emphasizes the force of the answer. 
in saying he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. He's emphasizing the fact that John made it unequivocally clear what John was saying. There was no hesitation in his denial. Now, whether they specifically said, are you the Messiah, which would not, which is obviously not written here, or John really just understood what they were asking, we don't know. But he declared, without question, I am not the Christ, which is another way of saying I am not the Messiah. Remember, Messiah in Hebrew and Aramaic is the word for the anointed one, which is what Christos, Christ in the Greek means. And it's the title for the promised one who would be sent from God to finally and forever deliver his people. John's answer in the Greek is emphatic. I, I myself am not the Christ. It's almost as if he's saying, I, I know you're wondering if I'm the true Messiah or one of many false messiahs, but no, I am not the Messiah. Well, with the clarity of that answer, they then move to another possibility. Look at verse 21. And they asked him, what then are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Elijah was one of the two men in the Bible who never died. Uh, the other one, one uh, being Enoch. Remember, Elijah was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire while his prophetic successor, Elisha, was looking on. And with, with that in mind, remembering how Elijah left this earth, listen to the closing words of the Old Testament. The final inspired words of God before 400 years of silence. Malachi 4, 5 and 6 says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The very last words of God before he goes silent for 400 years is, or I will send you Elijah. What do the people expect? They're waiting for Elijah. Well, Elijah served the Lord nearly 900 years before John the Baptist. No one had a picture of Elijah, so they didn't know how they could recognize him. But there was one possible way of recognizing him. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us that Elijah wore a garment of hair and had a belt of leather. This may have been a common style among prophets, but Elijah is the only one who is explicitly described as wearing that clothing. Well, Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, tells us that John wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt. And so there's at least some possibility that these Jews who knew the Old Testament would have said, hey, he's dressed the same way. Maybe it's the same guy. So they asked him, are you Elijah? Now this time his answer is a little bit shorter. He says, I am not. Now we have to think about that because some of you might be wondering, how does John's denial relate to the fact that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, talking to his disciples, if you are willing to accept it, he, referring to John the Baptist, he is Elijah that is to come. So Jesus says that John is Elijah, and John denies being Elijah. Did John not know who he was? 
Or is this a contradiction in Scripture? Well, neither is the case. As I said, the Jews were expecting the Elijah of old to come down from heaven before the great day of the Lord. Jesus, on the other hand, identified John as Elijah in the same sense that the angel Gabriel predicted would be true of him before his birth. We heard that passage read for us earlier. When John's father, Zechariah, received that word from Gabriel that his wife Elizabeth would have a son, the angel Gabriel said this of the child, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, that is the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the, uh, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John was not Elijah come in the flesh, but he was a prophet who came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, which is to say at the very least that John would have the same boldness as Elijah had. So when they asked, are you Elijah? John was right to say, I am not. But Jesus was also right to say that John was Elijah. Well, having ruled out that John is not the Christ, nor was he Elijah come from heaven, they asked about one more figure that they were anticipating based on the Old Testament. Look at verse, the end of verse 21. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. Notice that they, excuse me, are they, are you the prophet? That's what it says there. Notice that they didn't ask him, are you a prophet? They asked him, are you the prophet? Now there's some debate about whether, what this expected, who this expected prophet was, what in the Old Testament created this expectation. But the clearest passage that refers to a, a prophet to be expected is Deuteronomy chapter 18. Remember that Deuteronomy is that second giving of the law that Moses gave before his death. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Well, Moses, as we know, spoke the word of God to the people. He performed incredible miracles, obviously all done by God himself. After the death of Moses, Joshua became the new leader of the people, but Joshua was not a prophet. He did not speak on behalf of the people. He himself performed no personal miracles. And while there were prophets, obviously, throughout the history of Israel, none really captured the essence of this promise that Moses gave. And so this expectation, this promise kind of lingered in the air of God's people, of this unique prophet who would bear resemblance to Moses' ministry in terms of his unique relationship with God, how he engaged with God face to face and his prolific miracles. Now, John's ministry here had no resemblance to Moses' ministry, but this was the only name that they had on the list that was left. And so they asked the question, are you the prophet? And of course, John the witness simply says, no. And for whatever reason, John does not go out of his way to say who he actually is. He just answers their questions simply, directly, and in the negative. And so they, having crossed off of their list all of the possible uh, eschatological or promised uh, prophets and, and people that they were expecting, and with some degree of frustration, they say this in verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? 
we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? These priests and Levites were sent by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and they were to come back and report on the identity of John. And it would, do, it would do no good for them to say, we don't know, he wouldn't tell us. So they asked him that open-ended question, what do you say about yourself? Who are you? And his answer is remarkable. Look at verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John here does not identify himself by name or by title or by anything that would draw attention to himself as a, as a person. The, the only thing pertaining to himself that he identifies is simply this, that he is a voice. A voice. A voice is not a person. A voice is not an object. A voice is not an identity. A voice is nothing but a sound. And the sound that makes his voice worth listening to is not the pitch or the tone or the melody. It's the content of the message. And the content of the message, again, is this. Make straight the way of the Lord. This is a quote of the first half of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 which in its original context reads, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now you can hear perhaps a slight difference between what Isaiah says and what John says. I, Isaiah says that the place of preparation is in the wilderness, in the desert. And John says that the desert or the wilderness is the place of proclamation. That he's crying out as he's in the wilderness. Now that difference is simply explained by the Hebrew Bible compared to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which John is quoting. But that difference doesn't really change the meaning at all. In fact, because both John is proclaiming in the wilderness, make way a path for the Lord, and also he's baptizing the people in the wilderness, Isaiah 40 verse 3 is being fulfilled either way. Isaiah 40 is written to a people who are in exile and he's writing to give them hope that one day they will return to the land and soon after the Messiah will come and establish his kingdom in the land. And just like today, when city officials will clean up a city and close roads in preparation for a dignitary, Israel was being called here to prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. But the preparation that Isaiah was calling for and that John the Baptist was calling for was not a, a literal preparation. It was figurative. It's a metaphor for preparing your heart and preparing your mind. Repent of your sins and remove anything in your life that would be a hindrance to you receiving the Messiah. In giving this kind of an answer, John points to the fact that his own personal identity is of no importance whatsoever. What is important is that they prepare themselves for the Messiah. In reality, his answer to their question is simply to keep preaching his message. The, the report he wants them to take back to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem is not who is the preacher, but what is the message? Get ready for the Messiah. 
I mean, just imagine Paul Revere riding through town after town, yelling out, the British are coming, the British are coming. And somebody stops him and says, who are you? What do you think he would say? I don't know, but my guess is he would say, the British are coming and just take off. <laughs> he doesn't have time to explain who he is. It doesn't matter that the message is not strengthened or weakened based on the person who's preaching it or, or giving it. And so John's answer here is that all you need to know is that the Messiah is coming and you need to get ready. So we've seen here in verses 19 to 23 that the identity of John the witness is that he is he's like the town crier whose identity is of no importance compared to the message from the king. Then in verses 24 to 28, we see what gives this message and this preacher credibility. Look at verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Pause there. In verse 19, as we saw, it was the Jews in Jerusalem who sent these priests and Levites. And here, John gets more specific and notes that it was the Pharisees that sent them. The reason that he points this out is because the Pharisees were uh, among the religious leaders, the ones who were particularly interested and focused on religious life. The, the Sadducees were focused on religious law, and the Pharisees were focused on religious life. The, the Sadducees were the lawyers, and the, and the Pharisees were the priests. And since baptism is a religious ritual, the Pharisees had a particular interest in John the Baptist's ministry. So John inserts this note to emphasize why they asked this question. Now, let's look at the question, verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? To understand their question, I have to give you some background about baptism. Baptism is not a concept or a practice that's taught in the Old Testament. There were, of course, many ritual cleansings that took place, but that pertained to being ritually clean before the Lord, uh, especially for priests and Levites and those who were ministering before the Lord. As with everything else in God's law over the course of time, that biblical practice of cleansing grew into a far more elaborate practice of ritual cleansing. In fact, when you go to Israel uh, today or someday, the most recognizable feature in the ancient ruins in Israel is what's called the mikvah. A mikvah is really just a, a small pool, uh, just a few square feet where you would walk down a, a handful of steps and dip yourself into that pool of water. This was solely for ritual cleansing, not for actually taking a bath. And you find mikvahs all over the place. There's hundreds and hundreds of them throughout Israel that have been found. And in fact, in front of the ancient entrance to the temple, they've found over 50 mikvahs that would be used by people coming to Jerusalem or entering into the temple and who needed to be cleansed first. That kind of a ritual was not a one-time act. It, was, it would be done repeatedly and as often as was necessary. And furthermore, it was a self-directed act. Nobody would go down with you into the pool and baptize or, or dip you. You would go by yourself, you would dip yourself, and you would come out by yourself. So all around, that act of ritual cleansing, which was commonplace, was a categorically different ritual than baptism. Though it's not taught in the Old Testament, the Jews over time did, in fact, create a ritual of baptism. But that baptism only applied to the Gentiles who were becoming Jews. 
because because many religions of that day, and of course even today, were not just a matter of who you worshipped, but it was it was a whole life. It was your lifestyle. It was your culture. It was your relationships. It was your place in society. For one person to change from being a Gentile to following the God of the Jews, there had to be this complete rejection of your old life and a complete embracing of this new life, and that was represented by the act of baptism. The convert convert to Judaism was to effectively turn away from their old life and embrace this new life. And so a proselyte, as they were called, would be baptized as a symbol of dying to their old life and starting a new life as a Jewish convert. This baptism was similar to what we celebrated even last week and how we conceive of baptism today as it's taught in the New Testament. But understand this, and this is significant. Only Gentiles were baptized. It would be nonsensical, even offensive, for a Jew to be baptized. Because it would effectively be saying, I renounce my old life and I start a new life. And for a Jew to do that, well, they're already a Jew, so they don't need to do that. It doesn't make any sense. Well, the problem with John's ministry is he wasn't baptizing Gentiles at all. He was only baptizing Jews. So this delegation from the Pharisees, concerned with religious practice, wanted to understand, why are you doing such a thing? And and notice that they specifically asked, not just, why are you baptizing? But they say, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Well, we don't know for sure, but it seems as though they thought that those expected figures might actually practice baptism when they came. And the likely basis for this is the very first element of the new covenant promise. That new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36 is this. You'll remember this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. That new new covenant promise may have been what created this expectation that the Messiah Perhaps even Elijah or the prophet would engage in some kind of ritual cleansing of God's people. But, but if John isn't the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, why is he baptizing? In essence, what they're asking here is, what is this new ritual that you're introducing? Why should we listen to you and do what you say? Why should the people be baptized and what credibility do you have? And his answer, once again, deflects from himself and points to Christ. Look at verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And we'll see next time that... And the very next day in verse 33, he contrasts his baptism of water with the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, the Messiah, accomplishes. But for now, he doesn't get into that. To the the group, to this group that he knows is not really in search of the truth, but rather antagonistic toward true worship, he refuses to satisfy their curiosity. And and when he says there, I baptize with water, it's like he's minimizing the significance of what he's doing. He's like, I'm just getting people wet here. Uh, Getting in the water like this isn't anything for you and the Jews in Jerusalem to be concerned about. But I'll tell you what you should be concerned about, he says. 
Again, when he says there in verse 26, among you stands one you do not know. He, he didn't mean that Jesus was actually standing right there among them as if they could all turn around. Oh, there he is. No, this was just a, a way of a figure of speech to say that the Christ is already on the scene. He's on the earth and he's in Israel and he's about to be revealed. And as you see there in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus was was among them in that sense of he was being, uh, he was near to be revealed. But again, for now, on this particular day, instead of giving them a report of who he is and the basis for his baptism, instead of justifying his ministry or elevating himself, he really says nothing about himself except that he is of no consequence. Now, he really is of great consequence in God's redemptive plan, but his answer to these priests and Levites is consistent with his mission from God. He's pointing them and the people around who are listening in to the Messiah. Again, notice how he does this in verse 27. He says, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Untying another person's sandals was the task of the lowest slave. Remember that their words, their roads were dirt. And their roads were shared by people and animals. And so there were horses and livestock and all other kinds of animals that walked the same paths as the people. And these animals didn't then and still don't have any concern about who's coming in behind them. Imagine coming home every day from being out on the town. And every day you not only have dirt caked on your feet, but dung as well. And depending on where you lived, the roads and pathways in the city were crowded enough that you couldn't really navigate those spots on the road that you would want to avoid. And so your feet were just caked every day with not just dirt, but also the filth of animals. Untying your own sandals or having somebody else untie your sandals was not exactly a pleasant task in a soapless society. The rabbis, in fact, had a rule that their disciples had to do anything that they said except untie their sandals. This was too indecent of a task to, for a respectable person to do. It was only left again for the lowest, the most despised slave. So when John the witness says here, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, he, he lowers himself below the lowest slave in relationship to Christ. And here we see the credibility of John the Witness. It is his humility. John does not elevate himself in importance. He doesn't put himself to the right or to the left of the Messiah. He doesn't speak to his unique and remarkable privilege of being the forerunner of Christ. Now, in no way does he try to make a name for himself or his ministry. He does not do what all false messiahs and all false teachers do, and that is promote himself. In fact, if the forerunner were to direct any of the spotlight on himself or try to share in the limelight with the Messiah, he would lose credibility because he would be acting contrary to his purpose. But John's credibility as the star witness for the Messiah is that he does one and only one thing. He proclaims the coming of the Messiah and he points to that Messiah. 
All eyes should be directed on John only long enough to see where he's pointing. And then the gaze should be redirected in that direction. John is a a much underappreciated figure in history. And the irony is that that is precisely how it should be. He is the star witness in the case that proves that Jesus is the Christ. And that makes him significant. But once he steps down from the witness stand and his testimony is over, there's no more reason to follow him. And John himself will encourage his own followers in the days to come, as we'll see later in chapter 1 and as well as in chapter 3, to, hey, stop following me. Follow the Messiah. Well, to close out this section, he says uh, in verse 28 there, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is not the Bethany near Jerusalem where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, where Jesus stayed in his final days on this earth. We actually don't know where this Bethany is. And so some speculate that this was either a misspelling of a place that we do know or just some unknown uh, area. But it's likely that this is further north, closer to the Sea of Galilee, because as we'll see, starting in verse 35, uh, Jesus, or rather in verse 43, Jesus goes from this place to Galilee in apparently one day. And so it would seem that he's closer to Galilee than he is Uh, to the Dead Sea. I think John's point in telling us where this place is, is that it's a hint to the people that, that God's purposes for his people is no longer centered around the corrupt Judaism of the day, Jerusalem and the temple. They have to get away from the religious center of Israel in order to find the true God. Now, our our witness is not done with his testimony at this point. Having established his identity and his credibility, next week we'll hear the, the, the most complete testimony that he has to give about Jesus. But before we step away from this today, we, ha- we have here a powerful lesson for us. At, at least two, in fact, three. In this passage, John the witness models for us at least two principles that we can apply for our lives, and then there's a third I'll I'll tack on. First, he models for us faithfulness. His mission from the Lord was unique. He, He was called by the Lord to live and to preach in the wilderness, where few people lived. He didn't have an immediate audience around him that he could preach to. He was really all by himself. And on the surface, it seemed like this was a ministry doomed to failure. Who's going to listen to a prophet who's in the wilderness? But he did what God called him to do, and the Lord brought the people as the word spread. And he fulfilled his ministry faithfully. He was faithful to his task, and he didn't concern himself with the outcome. And that's an important lesson for all of us to learn. When we serve the Lord, we we can only concern ourselves with the responsibility that's been entrusted to us and let the Lord determine what the results will be. So John models faithfulness to us even in this passage. Second, he models humility. He was the first prophet in 400 years. His birth was a miracle proclaimed by an angel. Uh, He was a relative to the Messiah. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, being the forerunner to the Messiah. There's a lot of potential there for personal pride and self-importance, is there not? But John has none of it. He is nothing more and nothing less than a servant of the Lord. 
he sees himself as such a lowly servant that he's not even worthy to untie the Messiah's sandals. And it's in this that we learn a lesson of how we should view ourselves and how we should view others. We all know that we live in a celebrity culture. Music stars, movie stars, sports stars, media personalities, social media influencers, and the like are household names. Not only does the world have its celebrities, but we do too in the church. Musicians, preachers, and authors make up the A-list of Christian celebrities. Now, it may be more prominent today because of modern media, but this isn't anything new. In fact, among all of the problems that the Church of Corinthian had was that they had celebrity pastors. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.12, Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. You see, Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit gives to each believer spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. That's true for me. That's true for you. But what we sometimes do is we take certain gifts and particular teaching and preaching and other kind of upfront gifts, and and we elevate the, the men and the women who have those 10 talent worth of gifts such that we begin to follow the person and not the truth. Or on the flip side, we devalue our role in the kingdom of God because we perceive that our our gift is only one talent worth of gift. We don't have the gifts and the influence and the platform that those other people have, so we conclude that, you know, maybe it's just better for them to do it and I don't need, I shouldn't have to do anything. Remember the message from two weeks ago on the parable of the talents. Well, my friends, you, you and I are nothing more and nothing less than servants of our God Servants of our kind and generous master. Whatever gifts he's given to you is is a generous and liberal expression of his grace. And rather than elevating ourselves above others or elevating others above ourselves or devaluing ourselves below others, whatever we might do, we must view ourselves rightly as humble servants of the king and be faithful with what he's given to us. No matter what gift or role or responsibility you've been given, you have the ultimate aim to point people to Christ. Do you work in the nursery? You have the privilege of exemplifying the gentleness and the love and the patience of Christ to these little ones and their parents. Do you work on the facility? It's your privilege to exhibit Christ-like service and excellence. Do you teach in some capacity? Your joy is to faithfully proclaim Christ. Do you play an instrument or sing? You have the privilege of sounding forth the beauty of Christ. In whatever you or I do, we can demonstrate the character of Christ and we can point people to the Messiah and not to ourselves. So your identity and your value and your purpose is not found in you, it's found in the Christ that you serve. This is what we learned from John the Witness, but there's one more that I'll throw in. And that is to look to who he's pointing to. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not yet listening to John the Witness. Because John the Witness declares to us the Messiah has come to this earth. In John's day, he was walking on the earth. And as we'll see next week, he, 
He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and now we know that the way that He took away the sin of the world is by living a perfect life and dying on the cross for sinners and then being buried and then raising on the third day, showing His victory over sin and the acceptance of the Father of His sacrifice. And the call that is now put forth to all people everywhere is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop trying to justify yourself before God but look to Christ, who alone is the basis of our justification because He has done all that we couldn't do at all. So believe on Christ if you do not know Him today. And if, if you want to talk to someone about your relationship to Christ, maybe you have questions, please feel free to come up afterward. And I would love to talk to you. But let us all be reminded that no matter who we read about on the pages of Scripture, and again, we will, we will hear from many witnesses, we will see much evidence. The purpose of that all is to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this faithful, humble witness. A passage that perhaps on the surface doesn't have all that much significance for us, and yet it has incredible significance. Lord, would you cause your purposes to work out in our souls as your spirit takes the truth and implants it and, and works it out. Lord, if there's any here who do not know Christ, who, who need to hear this testimony from this particular witness, would you open their eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who he really is and what he's done on their behalf? And would you cause all of us to, to learn from his example and be faithful witnesses for Christ in our environment, in our relationships and our context that you've put us in so that Christ would be glorified above all things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.